This morning we continue our study in Colossians. If you have a Bible or an app or however you plan to follow along, if you would turn that to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. While you find your way there, I want to remind you of kind of the process we're walking through as a church to read and study together. If you've yet to pick up one of the Colossians cards right out the doors, uh, there's some tables. They're these big blue cards. They help lay out a reading and a study plan. They uh, help present some different resources. But the short version is Monday through Thursday, we're going to read one chapter of Colossians each day. There's four chapters in Colossians, so we'll read uh, chapter 1 on Monday, chapter 2, Tuesday, 3, Wednesday, 4, Thursday. Then on Friday, there's a cross-reference section of Scripture that allows us to look at God's revealed Word and other places in, in Scripture that help us better understand Colossians. By the time we get to Saturday, we will take the time to read and to begin to pray that God would use the very text that we'll preach on here Sunday morning. So it allows you to familiarize yourself with what we're going to teach and what we're going to study here and just prepare your heart. Sunday, we'll come back, and Sunday we've set aside one verse or a couple of verses that we can meditate on, that we can commit to memory. That day is kind of a day of review. Hopefully, as we walk through this, there'll be an opportunity for you to memorize a lot of Scripture. And so, as a church, we are reading through Paul's letter to the Colossians together. We're excited about that, and we want to make sure you join us. So make sure you get one of those cards. They'll lay it all out and explain how you can participate with us. Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin reading this morning in verse 1. We covered verse 1 last week. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We, will always, or we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learn, learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Last week, we began to uh, introduce our study of Colossians by recognizing that it is the revelation of God, that it is more than just some kind of self-help book, it's more than some extra resource, that it is indeed special. It is God's revealed Word, and it is trusted by us. It is a revelation that comes without question. It is not some old letter for some people a long time ago. Instead, it is a more fully confirmed revelation of God. Those are the terms Peter uses to describe it in 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 19, Peter is describing the moment he was present on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's an incredible story. I don't think many of us will ever have a story like that. Imagine here is Peter and appearing to Peter with Jesus is Moses. Moses has not been there in a long time, right? So here's Moses and Elijah. There's smoke on the mountain, and the mountain 
actually shakes when the audible voice of the Father speaks to the Son. That is a wowing spiritual moment. And yet, when Peter describes that moment, he says of it, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. In other words, from a more trusted source than even an experience like that. And he says, you will do well to pay attention. I don't know about you, but I'm not, I don't think I'm ever going to have an experience quite like that. And Peter says that we trust the Word of God, the Scriptures. It is more fully confirmed than even an experience like that. And he goes on and he continues to validate the writings of Paul in which he calls Scripture. A few chapters later, in chapter 3, verse 15, Peter writes, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters. Now listen, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Really? There's no amen there from anybody? You've never read your Bible and go, man, I don't, I don't get that. Okay, I'm going to amen for all of us. There are some things in the Scriptures that are hard to understand. There are some things that Paul wrote that, well, they require some thought. Amen. I'll amen it. There we go. There are some of these things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction. Listen, as they do the other Scriptures. Catch this. A few things. First, Peter says of Paul's letters, like the other Scriptures, in other words, he's saying, they're Scripture. It's important for us, Right? Again, it's not just some letter. It's not just some self-help idea. This is the revelation of God. God making himself known to us. And Peter goes on and he acknowledges that there are things in them that are hard to understand. Listen, by design. If these things came from God, God made it so. And it's not Paul's fault. You know, Paul wasn't just a bad communicator and he couldn't simplify it. That wasn't the case. And so we are charged as believers not to just twist these things that are hard to understand into our own destruction, but to study them, to meditate on them, to search them. I'll just tell you, listen, if if all you have are teachers in your life who teach you things that are easy for you to understand, that you don't ever leave a class or a a study or a sermon and go, man, that that might have been over my head. That was hard. I've got to think. Listen, if you never leave that, first, that teacher is not teaching you like Jesus taught. Listen, that happened to Jesus all the time. He would teach and people would walk away going, what is he talking about? That happened all the time. It's by design, by the way. Second thing I would challenge you with, and as you think through that, don't excuse yourself out. It's, It's not just... It's not just the study, it's not just the Bible, it's not just the teacher that that makes that hard. It's there by design. This is what Peter's saying. There's going to be some of this as we read through our study of Colossians, you're going to go, whoa, that's that's hard. That that verse is, that's for Pastor Mike. That, That verse is for him. I want to remind you, as much as it is for the brothers in Colossae, It is Scripture, therefore revealed truth from God that is also for you. For you. 
And there's a reason throughout our scriptures we are called to meditate and to study on it and not to just excuse ourselves out. That's the challenge for us. So although we may want to complain, although sometimes we may want to uh, look over the harder sections, I would challenge you to recognize what Peter is saying here. This is good stuff. Not just from Paul, but from God himself as he wants to make himself known. So let's pick up this morning in verse 2, and we'll find that Paul has written this letter to the saints. In other words, these are believers. These are Jesus followers. These are people whose life has been transformed by saving faith through the grace of God. These saints are united with Paul. He calls them brothers. Brothers. He recognizes that they are family. He does this because All of us who are in Christ come together through adoption into the family of God. Paul later will tell us that, listen, those who are in Jesus are joint heirs with Christ. We are brothers and sisters with Him. That's why in church you'll hear people say, brother. It's because we recognize that we're family. And one of the first points of application that we can grab from our text this morning is that if we would view one another truly as brothers and sisters, if we would look around and see the saints as family, I think we might treat one another a little different. We probably wouldn't treat one another based on of personality or like-mindedness in some sense. But we would recognize that that is my brother. That is my sister. They are a child in which my God sent His Son to die for. And it would spark in us, I think, a different way of viewing one another. These particular brothers resided in Colossae, a city we'll learn more about as we go through uh, our reading and our studies here on Sunday morning. But what I want you to know this morning is Paul didn't know them personally. He didn't know them personally. He hasn't been there. He hasn't met them. Instead, verse 8, we realize that Paul was made known of them by Epaphras. Epaphras. Well, that, that means something. First, that means Paul didn't start this church. He hasn't been there. It's not from Paul. As a matter of fact, verse 7, Paul credits Epaphras with starting the church. He says, you learned it, talking about the gospel that led to this movement, that led to this very church that Paul is now writing to. You learned it from Epaphras. This should be encouraging to us. This should be a reminder to us, and it should be a challenge to us. First, the part that's encouraging. You don't have to be an apostle to start a church. You don't have to be a pastor to spark a revival. You don't have to be a professional to share the gospel. The fact of the matter is, there are no professionals when we look at Scripture. It is us who have been reconciled and given the ministry of reconciliation. The responsibility falls to each one of us. And the thing that is encouraging in that, as we look at the testimony of Epaphras, we can start whole movements. You can. You can. Just by boldly sharing the gospel and allowing the Holy Spirit to work through the proclamation of His Word and His message. Have you ever met those people who were just born to do something? You can just, I mean, like my, my... example that I always think of is Shaq. Some of you guys remember watching basketball, especially back in the, in the late 90s or whatever. Shaq was so good in that early 2000, but Shaq couldn't even make a free throw. Remember that? 
He, I mean, if he was further than 10 feet away, he, he had almost no basketball skill. But Shaq was like, you know, uh, let's compare him to me. He's like a foot taller. He has muscle. I have fat. Uh, there are so many, right? Watch this. They could throw the ball anywhere kind of in the paint to Shaq, and Shaq would just kind of muscle his way down, turn around and dunk, and then run to the other end of the court. It was incredible. That man was born to be a center in the NBA. Just natural. Listen. For those of you in this room who have placed saving faith in Jesus, you have literally, literally been reborn for the mission of the gospel. It is yours. It is what you have been reborn to do. It is equipped to you. You, each one of you, not the person sitting next to you, not the pastor who you think's got it all together, but you, you are the one who was reborn to do it, born again to do it. And so let us be reminded that each of us are called to be an ambassador. Each one of us are sent out. That's an amazing thing to see, that the saints are called to the work of the ministry of the gospel. And if we are reminded, then let us be challenged. Live out your calling. Live out your calling. Go. Make disciples who make disciples. And who's to say that whole churches, listen, whole gospel revival movements will not be the fruit of God's work through your life? It was here for Epaphras. He's just a guy like you or me. And yet God supernatural through the power of his holy spirit started a church a church that has a legacy so much that it has fed believers around the world for two thousand years what an incredible incredible thing paul goes on to verse three and he says we 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 know timothy is a part of the writing of this letter with paul he's helping him we also recognize that paul is speaking for other believers and context around him but he says we pray for them we pray for these brothers in Colossae specifically they thank God for them they thank God for them and Paul says we do this always now listen sometimes we have a tendency to look back into scripture and we want to even make these guys more spiritual giants than they really are Paul is not always praying I know we think hey, listen he eats right he, he he does daily things he's not always praying What the verse is saying to us is, when we pray for you, we always give thanks to God for you. Every time they pray for the brothers at Colossae, they thank God for them. They thank God for them. Now listen, keep in mind, Paul doesn't even know them personally. That's important. He doesn't know them. I mean, they're not buddies. They they didn't go to high school together, right? He has no clue who these people are, and yet there is a genuine burden and affection for them as a brother. Listen, church, this is a practice that we need to model. It's a practice that we need to recognize that when we hear of the churches around the world, that we don't just pray for their needs, but we thank God for them. This happened to me just this week as I was studying and working through the text. I got an email from a friend of mine. He is a student uh, that I had in teaching a seminary course in a, a, a seminary underground in China. 
Uh, his code name was Seven. His friend, by the way, they, they pick these names that aren't their real names, you know, and all that kind of stuff. His friend picked the name Nimrod. And so it was Seven and Nimrod. And they were the two guys who kind of showed me around and kind of kept me under the radar while I was there. But we get an email from Seven, and he was updating me on all the exciting things that are happening there in his church, all the outreach stuff. And he gets to the end, and he kind of has this list of prayer requests. Pray for this, pray for this, pray. For one of our pastors was arrested because he challenged the government over a cross that was in our building and all these different things. And that seems so far removed from me. And so do you know what my quick tendency is? Is to jump in and pray for their needs. There was a sense of pause for me in light of what Paul is saying here, though, that I was able to just sit back and say, God, thank you for your work in this church. Thank you for people like Seven and this pastor who I don't really know on the other side of the planet who are fighting to advance the gospel. Thank you for what you're doing in them because ultimately it's not their work, it's yours. And I am so excited to be part of something that is so big. Thank you for what you're doing in their life. See, when we begin to see one another as family, this begins to change. Paul and the others, they prayed to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is in line with everything we see that is prescribed and de- uh, described in the New Testament. Meaning, we pray to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Now, if you're here and say, well, I pray to Jesus. I, listen, I don't think that's wrong. Jesus is God. That's not, you know, I don't think you're messing it up. But I will tell you, every time we see prayer in the New Testament, it's praying to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. And that's even why in our cultural context here in the Bible Belt, we kind of have that liturgy at the end of all of our prayers, you know, in the name of Jesus. Amen, right? What we're recognizing when we say that is that I'm not approaching the Father by my own merit, by something I've deserved or something I earned. I don't even have access to talk to you. I'm coming to you in the name of my Savior, the name of Jesus, and it's by His account that I can talk to you. And so that's why we do that, and we see that here. And so even as we're talking in Colossians, we're beginning to see a triune God. And so something hit me. Why why is this happening? What does Paul see so special in this church that he would begin to write them He would begin to thank God for them. What was special about them? And he begins to break that down in verse 4. He says, we heard, and he lists two things. First, he says, faith in Jesus. We heard of your faith in Jesus. This is their conversion. This is their saving faith that they placed in Jesus. We heard that you have made a decision to be a Jesus follower, that you've placed faith in him. Second, He goes on and he says, and we heard of your love for all the saints. Your love for all the saints. And the way I want you to see that is, that is the evidence of a life transformed. Paul looks at them and he says, you have placed saving faith and I can see evidence of a life transformed in you. This is God's work in your life. He has saved you and is sanctifying you. It's happening. And so I thank God for this. Because see, genuine conversion always leads to transformation. Always. 
You know not one place in the New Testament where you find a believer of like 10 or 15 years who's just been a believer, but you look at his life and there's no fruit, no evidence of any kind of transformation? Now listen, you're going to see sinful people and sinful believers in the New Testament. That's not what I'm saying. But over the scope and the fullness of their life, they persevere. They grow. And there are fruits of the Spirit in them. You won't find one person who just is like, yeah, I'm a Christian, and find no evidence of that Christianity in their life. It doesn't happen. It's nowhere to be found. On the flip side, though, you will find many who will be called out for a faith that, listen, was not genuine, was not saving. There'll be a day of judgment where we'll stand before God, and Jesus will look at many and say, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know what their argument back is? But Jesus, listen to what I've done for you. Listen to where I've been for you. And I don't think they're trying to lie and like weasel their way around the truth. Can I tell you what I think happens? In their mind, in their fallen, broken mind, they genuinely believe in that moment, what I've done is sufficient. My religious practice is sufficient. But I want you to know, listen, guys, we got to recognize that anyone who is in Christ has a life that has been transformed by the gospel. The scriptures teaches us that they're a new creation, not sinless, but they are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit at work in them. We're growing. Without that, we must question ourselves. And regardless what handles we hold on to is thinking that somehow that validates our salvation, we must break through that. For example, let me just pick on a few that's so close to us. Do you realize in terminology, in Scripture, there's no sinner's prayer? In terminology, there's no asking Jesus into your heart. There is no altar call in Scripture. Scripture only describes conversion at its core as through the Holy Spirit led repentance and saving faith that leads to a life transformed listen conversion in scripture is through the power of the holy spirit that would so convict that it would cause someone to repent and place saving faith in christ and it leads to transformation it does it leads to fruits of the spirit and this is why paul is here singling out their love for all the saints Because Galatians 5.22, Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. First one he mentions. He goes on into uh, Corinthians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, So as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. He goes on in verse 13, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. See, love is a fruit of the Spirit. He recognized in them saving faith that was genuine and rooted in transformation. Also, take note that they had a love for all the saints. They had a love for all the saints. That's because genuine love is a love for all. Because God loved all. One of the most famous verses we know is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world. 
And he loved the world when the world didn't love him. They didn't earn it. Paul goes on in Romans uh, chapter uh, 5, verse 8, and he says, listen, God loved us while we were sinners. Later he calls us the enemies of God. And this is why John, later in his letters, John says, we love because he first loved us. See, loving all the saints is being like Jesus. And as we, as a believer, place saving faith in Christ, God the Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is making us to be like Jesus. You know what that means? That means we're going to learn to love all the saints. All of them. Despite of the color of their skin, despite how much money they make, despite their personality, despite where they smell good or they annoy you or whatever else that you want to come up with. Listen, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit in us will compel us to love them all. Love them all. And so this is what we see happening here. And so how can such a transformation happen? Paul begins to explain it in verse 5. Because of the hope laid up, he says. Because of the hope laid up. Hope is a confidence here. It's not a hope like wishful thinking hope. This hope isn't, shouldn't be translated. Man, you know, like I'm a, I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan. It's been a rough year. I hope the Ravens win the Super Bowl next year, right? That's a hope. Now, if, you know, I don't know, I, I, if you're a Tennessee fan, it might take more hope to say, I hope the Vols win the national title, right? Those are wishful thinking hopes. Like, I really want them to happen, right? This isn't that kind of hope. This is the kind of hope that says, I have confidence in it. it I rest in it. It is secure in my mind. It is secure in the way that I live. The term laid up means reserved. Or appointed. There's a reservation that's happened. Uh, probably the best way to explain that is to take you to a famous verse that many of us know in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. We'll see this exact same word used here, just translated a little differently. It is appointed, it's the same word as laid up, it is appointed to men once to die, then the judgment. Listen. If mankind has one appointment, one reservation that is sure, it is death. It is coming for us all. It will happen to all of us. That is a sure appointment, a sure uh, reservation. Does this make sense? And so they had certainty, confidence that heaven was their reservation. That they had an appointment in eternity with God. It was what they were confident of. And so, because of this, they were able to fix their minds, not on the things of this world, but to fix their minds on the kingdom of God. Because it's hard to love all when your attention is on this world. Because then we start thinking about what we deserve, what they deserve, what they've done for us. But when we see through the kingdom of God, we recognize that those people are the very people that God sent His Son to die for. We recognize those people as family. And we don't see through the persecution of a moment or a day or a year or even a lifetime. But we live for an eternity. And so what happens is our saving faith changes our worldview. It changes the way we see everything, and therefore the way we love and treat others. And so what I want you to catch here is that they are overwhelmed by the grace of God, so much so that they love beyond merit. See, listen, we cannot love as Jesus loved 
when our gaze is in the world. We just can't. We can only love as Jesus loved when our eyes are fixed on the kingdom of God. He goes on, he says, of this, of this, this confidence that they have in their reservation in heaven, this, this new kingdom lens that they see, of this, he says, you've heard the word of truth or the gospel. And so quickly I want to remind us, what is the gospel? It simply means it's the good news, it's the message, but it is the redemptive story, the redemptive story that your entire Bible reveals. It is the fullness of the story of redemption for us. One of the things I'm really excited about our church, you heard Paul talk about it, is our family discipleship plan. Our family discipleship plan begins in preschool when we begin to instill in preschool foundations, truths, based on who God is that we want them to grow up understanding. So we don't want them to just grow up to understand to be nice because we want them to be moral. We want them to be like God. And God has a certain character about Him. And when we move into elementary, we focus on the story. It's the redemptive story. And we hold out four simple terms to help them understand the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Those terms have been around for a long, long time. We didn't come up with them. We're probably not that smart, right? But listen, they're handles. They're handles to a story that says, in the beginning, God created everything. And it was good. And He created Adam and Eve. He created people, a man and a woman. And they walked with God. They had a relationship with God. But that that relationship was broken due to sin. And there was a fall. And that fall has impacted every one of us. And Scripture tells us that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That every one of us has sinned. And our sin is so extreme and has left such a mark on us, there is nothing we can do before a holy God to fix what we have broken. We are hopeless. And yet, in our hopeless state, God loved us, not enough to just extinct us, but enough to send His Son to pay the penalty for that very brokenness, for that very sin, to pay the penalty for us. That through faith, saving faith, by the grace of God, not by our merit, but by the grace of God, we might be reconciled, brought back into a right standing with Him. That we might be adopted out of that broken, fallen family of Adam and placed into the family of God. And so we recognize that there was a redemption, that Christ has atoned our sins and offered us the hope of salvation through faith. But it doesn't end there. We know that Christ has gone on to heaven and He prepares a place for us. A new creation where we live, not broken by our sin nature still, but we live holy and just before God, not of our own account, but of His. See, this is the gospel. This is the story. And what happened here in Colossae is these people grabbed a hold of it. And it was changing their life. Changing their life we go on to verse 6 and we see that the gospel has come to you this is what Paul says to those in Colossae the gospel has come to you like the whole world Tri-Cities Baptist Church listen the gospel has also come to you you've heard it it's here it's been multiplying and at work around us 
But listen, the gospel is not just an American message. The gospel is not just a Bible Belt message. The gospel is global. For God so loved the world. And it is producing fruit and increasing around the world, Paul says. Listen, it produces fruit beyond human control or human effort. I'm so thankful for that, especially for one who is called and set apart for ministry. I see all of my flaws. I think all the time, I'm sitting here talking to you. I'm from East Tennessee. My grammar is horrible. I'm random of thought. There's probably every other sentence I start, I don't finish. You don't have to amen that. But it's there. I have all kinds of weaknesses. And yet somehow for 20 years, the Lord has had me doing these kinds of things. And somehow in spite of all of my weaknesses, there's increase in the gospel. That blows my mind. I mean, no one knows my weaknesses more than me. I see them. There. And yet God is doing stuff around the world beyond human control or human giftedness. The next thing I want you to see is it's beyond culture it is cross-cultural again i've traveled the world and spoke and taught and things i would tell you listen we can't agree on anything we don't agree on a language we we can't we certainly don't agree on food i've been in some places in southeast asia you should it should be against the law to eat some of that stuff i don't even know how they can eat some of that i'm just like can i find a hamburger please hamburger pals pals needs to expand to southeast asia but if pals were there do you know what would happen they wouldn't eat it because they don't like it. It blows my mind. They're weird, I guess. I don't understand. My point, though, is we can't agree on food. We certainly don't agree on, like, fashion. By the way, some of you pride yourselves in being very fashionable. Just get in your car and drive for a little ways. You'll end up in a place, and you'll be as fashionable as me. It, it just There you go. Look at that. See? <laughs> That's it. Fashion differences all around our globe. The family dynamics are different. Things as precious to us as our weddings. I mean, think about that. We don't get married the same anywhere in the world. It's all different. And yet, in the midst of all these cultural differences that we will fight for, the same message works to radically change lives around the world. The gospel is cross-cultural. It is because it is by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit And so Paul closes in verse 6 with two qualifiers of their saving faith. He first says, you've heard it. You've heard it. Man is not passive in conversion. It isn't something that just happens to you. You hear it and you respond. You hear it and you respond. Romans 10, 14 says, How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The gospel must be heard. It must be taken in. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have been set apart for the ministry of reconciliation, that should mean something to us. It should mean something to us. We have been given the ministry to proclaim the gospel message. The second qualifier we see is it was understood. It was understood. The grace of God and truth, it was understood. See, our belief must be understood in truth. So what do you mean by that? I think the best example I can take you to is Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone saves men. Jesus and Jesus alone. So it's not just the Jesus we want Him to be or the Jesus we make up to be or the Jesus we feel He is. It is the Jesus who has revealed himself. It is the Jesus who is. 
So church, we've heard it. Will you understand it? Will you accept it as truth? There may be someone in this room right now that the Holy Spirit is overpowering you with conviction that would cause you to repent and place saving faith. And for the first time in your life, you would understand the gospel. You would understand it. It would take root the truth of who God is and what he's done for you in your life. And if that happens, church, I want to assure you, it will change your life. I'm going to ask you to bow your head, enter in a time of prayer and a time of response as the team comes forward. There are so many applications that have been mixed in these verses that we've looked in this morning, but I want to highlight a few. First, you may be here and there's a day and a time where you've placed saving faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and the revelation of God has forever changed your life. You have faith. You have belief. But you struggle to love. You have bitterness. You have anger. You have frustration against the saints, brothers and sisters in your life. I would compel you this morning to step back and as a point of application to recognize that to love like Jesus means to love them all. Perhaps you're here and your life has been filled with religion and practice. But there's never been a moment and a time in your life you have repented and placed saving faith in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit Him making Himself known that has transformed you if that's you I would challenge you to use this song, to use this time as a time to pray to the Lord to plead with Him to take the gospel that you have heard and work it out into your life to understanding. That you would confess that you are a sinner. That He is God and He loved you enough to send His Son to pay the price for that sin. And that now, now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, it makes sense to you. It's been revealed to you and you claim it with saving faith that will change your life and your worldview. I pray that you would make that your prayer as we sing. Church, may we be like those in Colossae who didn't just hear the gospel, but were transformed by it and who love all the saints. Would you take this time and would you stand? Would you pray? And would you sing a song of response with us as a church?